and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. What books do you think about when you hear the term banned books? Do you envision classics like Huck Finn or Catcher in the Rye? Or books that you wanted to sneak to read when you were a kid because it had swearing, magic, or sexual content? In fact, a book series that has been arguably one of the most beloved in modern history, the Harry Potter series, is still high on the list of banned books so many years after it was first published. Our episode today was recorded during Banned Books Week, a week-long annual event sponsored by the American Library Association to celebrate the freedom to read and bring awareness to both current and past attempts to censor books in libraries and schools. We believe this topic is one that you can think about any time of the year, not just for one designated week, so we wanted to explore the topic with our guest, Natalie McCall a librarian and head of youth services at the Mill Valley Public Library in the Bay Area of California. She's also the host of a podcast called Eight Books That Made Me, where she has conversations with young adult authors about five books that influenced them growing up and three books they encourage readers to check out now. Natalie discusses what it meant to be a high-low reader when she was a child, why she thinks one of the most common types of censorship for libraries is based on what books they don't choose to purchase, and about the role of libraries and the freedom to read as one of the foundations of democracy. When quarantine first started in March, we had to scramble really quickly to learn how to remote record with people because we couldn't meet with them in person. And I think it's funny and really awesome that six months in, we have been talking to people all over, which is really cool. Our guest this week is Natalie McCall. She is the head of youth services at Mill Valley Public Library in California, which is in the Bay Area. She is an avid reader as well as a podcaster, and she's going to be talking to us about banned books. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I feel like I know I'm, you guys from listening to your, your podcast for so long. I love it. Well, I feel the same way because I've been following your podcast, Eight Books That Made Me, that you do for the Mill Valley Public Library. I've been listening to that for probably a year, so I'm super excited to talk to you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about the community where you work. So I grew up in Sausalito, which is a small town, a couple of towns over from where I work now in Mill Valley. It's a very small town, it's a tourist town on the water. And a lot of my childhood was walking to the library and the park and playing and reading. And that was informed a lot of my childhood and my imagination. And the Mill Valley Library, I always thought was not just one of the most beautiful libraries I'd seen, but one of the most beautiful buildings. I could describe it as a book tree house in the woods. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like it's in the middle of the redwood trees and it's this beautiful 
building with all this windows and wood furniture. So it does kind of feel like this magical book place. So I was very excited a couple of years ago when a job opened up here, be able to be in this space and have that connection. It almost does feel kind of like a fairy tale place, which is perfect for a book lover like me. I have been to the San Francisco area a few times. And is your library near Muir Woods? Yes, exactly. Okay, that was such a beautiful area. So for people who have not been, you hear about the giant sequoias and there are some sequoias that are a little closer to San Francisco that if you're in that area, you can visit because I guess the giant sequoias are a little farther north. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, the giant sequoias are, they're really tall, but they're also really wide. I remember as a kid going to Yosemite on a field trip and maybe like 13 kids would touch hands hand to hand and wrap around the trees. That's like kind of how wide they are. So the trees in Mill Valley aren't that wide, but they're really tall. Have you ever seen the movie Vertigo that takes place in the woods around here? So tell us a little bit about what your reading life was like as a kid growing up. What are some books that you remember loving? So I think how I read as a child did shape how I was as a reader. When I look back, I'd say it's very what I call now like a high, low reader, high culture, low culture, where I loved books that were classic. So I read things like Little Women. I loved The Secret Garden. But I also loved what I might call the children's version of, I don't know, trashier books. Like I loved Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High, Goosebumps, and Fear Street. So I just really devoured everything. I've had phases in my life where, not now, but phases in my life where I was a more pretentious reader. But definitely as a child, I just, if I liked it, I just gobbled it up. And I think back about my childhood, I was the total, I don't want to say trash, I guess lo-fi, you know, if you want to call it that, whatever. That was kind of my jam. And it wasn't until I got older that I discovered the classics and had any interest in reading them. So a lot of the book, like Little Women that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I didn't read those until I was an adult, which is, it's super interesting (laughs) how different people's experiences are when it comes to reading. Well, it's funny, I think, because kids don't think that way. They don't think, you know, oh, I'm reading literature in this book and this book I'm reading like a pop thing. When you're a kid, you just read whatever you like. Adults are the ones who think more that way of this is a piece of literature or this is a romance novel or this is a pop suspense, whatever it is. So what kind of experiences did you have that nudged you towards a career as a librarian? Well, it's funny. So I was an English major, which makes sense for my love of books. (laughs) In college, I worked in my university's rare book and manuscript library. So when I went to library school, I went into it thinking that I wanted to be like an academic library and work in a university. And on a whim, I took one children's literature class. Like I filled out my quarter of like all these more academic classes. And I just fell in love with this children's literature class. And I hadn't read children's books since I was a child. And I also really fell in love with the idea of working with the public and being able to just not read and love books myself, but to connect with all people in that way. So I just serendipity that brought me into public libraries. So as head of youth services, what does that look like? I would assume you're dealing more in the children's. Yeah, so it goes from like baby to 18. And I'm not alone. I have help (laughs) in my department, which is really great. We break things up into different groups. So we think of the zero to five, which we call like early childhood or like early childhood literacy, which is when we focus on things like story times and the building blocks of literacy. Really love is when kids start to read on their own. And you have easy readers and chapter books. And then where I really, really start to get excited with kids and reading is when they hit middle school and then high school, because that's when they're really exploring and being more independent readers. And they're just really fun to talk to about books and to recommend things to them. And we do this thing we call pearls, which are personalized reading lists. 
where we'll interview kids about like what they like to read, what they hate to read, kind of stories they like, and we'll make them personalized reading lists. And that's one of my favorite things that we get to do. That's very cool. I know our library has started doing, it sounds similar, but they're book bundles. So our libraries Mm -hmm. haven't really opened up. They'll do appointments to use computers, but people are still having to do curbside pickup for books, but you can email or call your library and say, I'm really interested in anything about sloths. And so (laughs) they were putting together this book bundle. So as many books as they could find, whatever age range about sloths. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. With quarantine, I think it's part of that adaptation where it Mm -hmm. seems like our library is thinking about how to make the library even more useful. I mean, if you're a book lover anyway, you probably use your library all the time, but trying to make it a lot more useful for families that are having to do stuff at home and do their classes online and that kind of stuff. Definitely. I I think it's made us more creative and also clarifies the most important things that we do. Because I go usually at least once a week to pick up books, pull in, you call, you tell them you're there, you open your trunk. It's just like getting groceries, right? But it's your library books. And so one of the gentlemen came out to put books in and I I told him, I said, you all just don't even know how happy I am (laughs) that you all are doing this. So what kind of books do you enjoy reading now as an adult? I'm drawn to books by the writing. It's almost like a romantic feeling that's hard to describe. But in terms of genre, I'm interested in everything. My one maybe blank spot is nonfiction. I'm not really great at reading adult nonfiction. A couple times a year, I try to throw in stuff on purpose. I read, you know, middle grade books, young adult books, adult books. And like on any topic, it can be a mystery. It can be historical fiction, science fiction. I just have to be pulled in by the writing. I joke with a colleague of mine a lot because I give up on books all the time. I'll check out stacks of library books, but I'll read like the first five or 10 pages. If, and if I'm not feeling drawn in, I'll give up. So there's this book that I love, or it's like kind of a list. It's called The Rights of the Reader. I can't remember offhand who wrote it. It's a French author. And some of the rights are like the right to skim a book, the right to read the ending first if you want to, the right to give up. Especially, you know, having been a student and having been an English major, yeah, when you have to read certain books, you don't have a choice. I feel like that's kind of the fun part as reading for fun is you're in charge of the experience. You can kind of make up your own rules. So we're here today to talk about Banned Books Week. So the American Library Association every year holds Banned Books Week as a way to celebrate the freedom to read and to bring attention to the harms of censorship. And so I'm just wondering if you have had any experiences of censorship. It doesn't come up too often where I live. There are a couple of experiences. So years ago, I was doing a middle school book club. And so they're about seventh and eighth graders. And I was you know, picking our next book. And I chose The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Mm, yes. I don't know if you've read it. It's a really that makes great... all the lists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, on, it's on all the band lists. Yes. It's a really wonderful novel. I hadn't read it in a few years, but I I just knew that I loved it. So I was like, I'll read along with them. And a parent emailed me and she was someone who she read all of the books that her son read. And she said, I love this book. It was a great choice. I don't have a problem with choosing it, but I wanted to give you a heads up in case other parents have a problem with it. And it was because there was maybe one scene of like a masturbation moment or like Mm. a Mm -hmm. dream or something like that which had completely slipped my mind. I hadn't remembered that. And for a moment, I was nervous, but no other parents contacted me. And sort of cute, actually, when it came up with the kids because the boys were all awkward about it and the girls were kind of blasé about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but it is one of those things where, you know, yeah, that's a real middle school moment. Like, that's part of middle schoolers' lives. Even if parents don't want to admit that it's part of middle schoolers' <laughs> right. lives. Right. But there are more kind of moments like that. And I do feel like I would get in trouble if I worked in a school. There's a part of me that would love to be a school librarian. But I'm not very good at judging of, oh, maybe the kids are too young to read this. Because when I talk to kids about books, based on our conversation, oh, you would love this book. And trusting them to feel like if they're ready for a book or not. From talking to kids and having had like so many book clubs over the years, I feel like kids decide from themselves if they're ready for the content of the book or if they want to read the content of the book. And I have had kids who were like, I stopped reading that book because I didn't like the language. There was like a curse word or something like that. So I do personally trust kids to decide for themselves which is why I feel like I need to be in a public library because I can have that perspective and not get in trouble. <laughs> or in a school, you might have to think about that more. So libraries do have a process of responding to challenges. It's only happened to me a couple of times in my career. And none of them have really been full on censorship. I had one parent, there was a book called The Winter Pony, and it was obviously a sad book. It was like a, a middle grade novel. Her daughter had read it and it made her cry. And the mom, she didn't want me to remove it from the library, but she wanted me to remove it from the children's section and put it like in a teen or adult section. So I just kind of had a conversation with her of explaining of not every book in the children's room is for every child. And even if it made her daughter cry, that doesn't mean that it was a bad choice for her to read it or that another child shouldn't read it. So I think in general, we do try to talk people through and explain the library stance. And also the library, we're not in loco parentis. So it's not up to us to decide what's right for any. And I'm talking about children in particular because I'm a youth services librarian. But for, for anyone, like what anyone else should be reading. I teach middle and high school students. And I think sometimes what happens, it, not so much high school, but mm -hmm. what I perceive that happens like as students move into middle school, there is a big difference in when I say the reading level in terms of the length of the book, the diction, you know, the choice of words that the authors use. Mm -hmm. There's just a pretty significant leap in terms of reading level. So sometimes you have a kid who's maybe younger, but because they're such a good reader, it's like they go through all the books that are appropriate for their age. And so then the parents want them to read at a higher level. Okay, if you want to read at a higher level, that means the content is also mm -hmm. going to be at a more mature level. And so sometimes I feel like that is what happens. I want my child to read, but they might be in third grade, but they read at a sixth grade level. And it's like, okay, well, if you're picking sixth grade books, you have to expect that the content's going to be different because it's going to be about sixth and seventh and eighth grade students. So do you ever find that that happens with parents? Definitely. I feel like one of our biggest challenges is it's like a middle school child, maybe, maybe around sixth grade, who's a really advanced reader and technically could read high school books. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of YA, of current YA, I feel like in terms of content and language does skew older almost more to like 16, 17, 18. So there's, I feel like there are a couple of areas in publishing where there are gaps. And I feel like there is a gap of that younger teenager. And a lot of times we'll find ourselves maybe even giving classics to those children, especially like I've had some mystery readers who maybe I wouldn't give a YA mystery because they tend to be, you know, these days really graphic and gory and language and all this, but I might go give them Agatha Christie. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> right. So it kind of leads us to, these, I guess, creative readers advisory. 
But it is one of the things on my list, or if I had a direct line to publishers, I'd say, hey, can you get us more books yeah. that we could recommend to this kind of reader? So I'm wondering how libraries choose the books that they include in their collection. So I know in 1982, the Supreme Court ruled that libraries can't ban books simply because of their content. What is the method that your library would use to select books to include in their collections? And do they take into account content? So we, we go eyes on book reviews, and we think about the community we're in in particular, in terms of demographics, interests, and then try to create a collection that, you know, the books that they want to read. But also it's really important to have a collection that reflects diverse points of view. And that can mean a lot of different things. And like, depending on what type of book or where you are, which is one thing where I'd say probably the one way that librarians censor books, maybe even without even thinking about it, is through the books that they don't order. And a lot of times it might happen, say you're not a diverse community, whatever the demographics are, you might think you only need books that are written by people who are similar in that community. But actually, like you should have a diverse collection, even if your community is not diverse, if that makes sense. Yeah. To represent, you know, just perspective of not even just the country, but a global society. I feel like there's very few occasions of like outright banning of books, but where censoring more comes in is that books aren't even being ordered. I think that goes to that whole idea of books as mirrors or books as windows. And so you can't just buy books that are mirrors. You also want to buy books that are windows into other people's experiences. Well, and also I would say as a child, what made me fall in love with reading was actually the window reading because I wanted to know about, you know, everybody everywhere, all the places that maybe I couldn't visit in my life. Like that's how I got to experience other people's realities through reading. I like that's the magic of it. So of course you'd want to build a collection that ideally that is as diverse as the world. None of us have the budget to do that much. (laughs) Right. But to kind of like do that on the level that we can. And whenever I hear books being banned, my thought is just, oh, well, what is it that people don't want people to think about? Because usually it's like a topic that people don't want people to talk or think about. So is Freedom to Read part of the mission of public libraries? Talk to us about the mission of your library, or if we can extrapolate out to public libraries in general. So on a national level, we have a national association, which is the American Library Association, which has a code of ethics. And the Freedom to Read is actually one of our code of ethics. So it's it's a big deal. And we do, you know, libraries, we consider ourselves a cornerstone of democracy. One of the most important things of democracy is free and equitable access to information and the freedom to read. So I think that's our core ethic, if I had to choose one, is the freedom to read. And one thing that people might not know is that it, it applies to all ages. So we're also, we're thinking of children when we say that too. So once a child has a library card, we don't limit their access to anything in our collection. And of course, parents can, and that's, you know, their role. But as the library, we don't restrict their access to our collection. So it is really a big tenant of who we are. You had mentioned that sometimes censorship is probably for some people, it's unconscious, like with ordering books. But have you ever heard of situations where librarians, because of their own hangups, tend to dear patrons in certain ways. To some extent, I guess for me, if I love a certain genre of book and people come up and say, you know, I'm looking for something to read, I'm probably going to steer them towards things that I like. Talk to us a little bit about your role as a librarian and helping patrons and not letting yourself get in the way of that. Definitely. We all have our own biases and I definitely have to check myself all the time, really. There are books like maybe especially some teen books that I wish would die in popularity or that I wish people wouldn't read there are a couple of books that I even think are harmful but I still have them in my collection I'm not going to stop people from reading them that is how important this code of ethics is is that 
I'll check myself against it. <laughs> and for me, like, it's very important to be a diverse reader. So when I do recommend books to people, like, if a teenage girl tells me she wants really great YA romance, I'll pick a couple of choices for her. But, you know, my favorite teen romance is a love story of two boys. So I would include that one in there just because it kind of fits under, like, this is a great romance. Actually, one thing I have to find myself doing is not censoring myself and not checking in of making sure oh, is it okay with you if I include a gay romance? <laughs> but just uh -huh. like just to do it and then the reader can sort it out for themselves later. In your role as a youth librarian, do you ever see kids drawn to books because their parents don't want them to read them? I was that kind of reader. <laughs> if my parents were like, I don't know if you should be reading that. That's totally the book I wanted to read. I'm well, still that kind of reader. And it's if anybody tells me, oh, you shouldn't read that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go check that out tomorrow. Thank you. Sometimes I always wonder like what happens after when the parent and child are together. Because there's one where a mom walked her teenage son over to me and he was really, I could tell, embarrassed. He's probably like, you know, 15 or 16. And he was reading Stephen King. Can you help me find a book for him that's like Stephen King, but age appropriate? And I thought she meant like the, you know, the horror and the gore and the violence, you know, I talked to her a bit to pull out what she meant, but she meant sexual content, which I don't read a ton of Stephen King, but I don't remember there being a ton of sexual content in it either. I recommended a couple of teen books, which I don't know, might even have more sexual content probably than Stephen King, just knowing how teen books are. Like it's hard to find something that doesn't yeah. have that at all. But I just kind of wondered, what's he going to do after this moment? Sometimes you always want to be like, you know, come talk to me without your parent or something. <laughs> and I'll recommend right. you some books to see what's really going on in this situation and once a kid is around 16 we do think of them as independent you know they have a lot of, in a lot of libraries at like around 16 is when you get your own card like not a child's card anymore so you're responsible for getting the books back and you're responsible for your own fines and kind of all that so we think of that as more of an independent age a lot of times actually i see parents who are supportive of their kids pushing boundaries a little bit which is funny i wonder if that makes it less fun but i had a kid who wanted a book on swearing like how to swear um <laughs> And it was an elementary school age kid, but the mom was there and the mom was, I could see kind of laughing to herself. And we did, we found them a book on swear words. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing that I think that's a big part of the whole idea of banned books that I feel like gets missed sometimes. I talk to a lot of parents and I, I am a parent, but I think sometimes what gets missed, and this is the way I think about it, is that I look at a book as a very safe way for my kids to be exposed to things, but they're in a very safe environment. They're in our house. It's not a movie that they're watching visually. They can only sort of imagine what they can imagine. And there might be limits to that because they're only a certain age or whatever. It's not like they're seeing it through the lens of a 45-year-old man, you know, like Quentin right. Tarantino or whatever <laughs> is going on with him. They're seeing it through whatever lens they have as they're reading. And so I've always thought giving kids the opportunity to explore reading is a, is a safe way to do that. And it's a safe way for them to test themselves mm -hmm. in terms of what do I think about this? How does this make me feel? Where do I want to go after I finish reading this book? I understand the urge to want to protect, but at the same time, it, eventually your kid is not going to be under your protection and they're going to have mm -hmm. to make their own decisions. And if you haven't even given them the opportunity to think critically and to test themselves when it's very safe, what are they going to do when they don't have safety backing them up? It's this battle between, are you really protecting your kids the way you think you are? No, I completely agree. And I think we all have books that maybe we wouldn't ban or like, should kids still read this? And sometimes I think about that with books, like maybe some of the older classics that have content that might be 
you know, really racist or something like that, like Little House on the Prairie. But when I think about it, where I fall on it is like, I don't want to stop anyone who wants to read it from reading it. But yeah, if you teach your kids how to be critical readers, or even if they're younger, if you read books with them and talk them through them, then that book can jumpstart a conversation, which I think is where we all learn, where we learn what we think, what our values are, or where we learn history, learn the context of something. And I feel like I was reading the banned books website. And one of the reasons we're banning is we don't want our kids to talk about this topic, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of whatever it is. Like if we think it's they're too young or it's too difficult, that very process, like learning how to talk about confusing or difficult, that's the part that kids actually need to learn and that adults still need to do. Feeling like you're firm on any topic, like you know exactly what you think about something forever, that's what's harmful, not being open to different voices or thinking or different discussions. A lot of times, you know, when people think about banned books, they think about classic. They think Mm -hmm. about Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. I actually had a situation, I was teaching The Grapes of Wrath, and I had a mom who read it to her, I can't remember if he was a freshman or a sophomore, but she read it to her child so that she could self-censor, which I just found mind-boggling. But so in terms of classics, because I would assume that there are different reasons why somebody wants to ban a classic book as opposed to something that's more contemporary. So uh, have you noticed that there seems to be a difference between the reasons why classics are banned and the reasons why modern novels are banned? So maybe like with Tom Sawyer's The Use of the N-Word or like Huck Finn, something like that. I think all comes down to the same thing, which is like, we don't want to talk about this. It's too hard. Because you could read those books and talk about why the language was used, context of history at the time. It could be a jumpstart to a conversation. But I don't ever really feel like anything positive comes from like that story you said of cutting out the bits you don't like or suppressing the creation that was there, if that makes sense. And this is kind of one of the things where like, I feel like the urge to ban exists in everybody, regardless of what your values might be. Because you might want to ban something maybe because it has LGBT content and you don't like that. Or you might want to ban something because it, you think it has racist content and you don't like that. It could be whatever your reasons are. But I feel like fundamentally it's about wanting to block thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. to block ideas. It goes beyond that because if it was just that, then you could just avoid that yourself, right? I'm not going to read books about this. But censoring or banning goes farther of like, I don't want anybody to read this. And so if you're a parent, it's not just, I don't want my kids to read these books. I don't want any other kids to read these books either. And that to me, I feel like it's the harmful part because of course, as a parent, you have the right to make those choices about your children, but you don't have the right to make the choices about every other kid at your child's school. So as I was looking over the ALA's list for each year, like say in the last five years, the top 10 Mm -hmm. books that were banned or restricted in libraries and schools, it seems to me like there might be an ebb and flow depending on what the societal concerns are of the time of that particular year. So- Like for last year, they had 566 books that were banned or challenged in library schools and universities. And of the 10 most frequently banned books in 2019, eight of them were newer releases that focused on LGBTQ issues. The other two were The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood and the Harry Potter series. It's hard to believe the Harry Potter series. Yeah, still still Harry Potter. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that really has some staying power there. But then, like, if you looked at the year before, there were several books, like The Hate You Give, that was more about police violence against people of color. And I I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. No, I think that's completely true. And what I find interesting, so so say it's The Hate You Give, and that's about, you know, police brutality and and racism. 
and you want to ban that because you don't want students, say, talking about that topic. But it's not like they're not talking and thinking about it. They're just not going to read about it in that book. But they're still social media. They're still talking amongst themselves, probably watching movies and videos and all kinds of things parents don't know about. I always think of books as like the deeper exploration of a topic. You're not getting rid of students talking about the topic. You're getting rid of that deeper exploration. And maybe it's just easier because it's hard to ban your children from social media. I think a lot of people try to get a book banned before reading it. Mm. So probably make assumptions about a book and, you know, they see what The Hate You Give is about and they might assume they know what it's about. And I think they people might assume that it has an agenda and it wants to not just explore a topic but make kids think a certain thing. So maybe you think The Hate You Give is, is trying to make kids hate police officers or something like that, which it doesn't. But that might be the assumption. Or if it's an LGBT book, you might think this book is trying to make my children gay or whatever it is. So I feel like it is more than just banning a story. It's like it's viewing books as propaganda almost. If the school has this book available for my kids or trying to make my kids change their value system to one that I don't like, I feel like people find it threatening, which yeah. is interesting that especially with the Internet, like of how kids have access to literally every point of view in the world, that books are still somehow viewed as threatening in that way. In some ways, I think it shows like the power of stories and the power of novels that they can be so triggering even harry potter it is banned on like on religious grounds right i think maybe <laughs> witchcraft the like, occult yeah the like occult witchcraft and the occult that at reading a book can destroy the belief system you're trying to teach your children and if that's true then how strong gonna, is that belief yeah, system yeah, how strong is that belief system <laughs> if you know if reading harry potter will be like i don't think so mom i'm not into that anymore let's get tangent but i've always been interested in the amish and how they have the i think they call it rumspringa Mm -hmm. where kids or youth are encouraged to take a year off and explore the world and then decide if they really want to come back and stay in this belief system. Well, I think it's very cool, but also there's like tremendous belief in your value system where you want people who actually really are committed and not just kept from having other points of view. I think it shows some insecurity there. You know, mm -hmm. like, well, I can't let my kids see any other viewpoint because they might not choose my viewpoint yeah being that restrictive like for me banned books I'm like oh I want that list so I can read everything on it because if people are trying to stop me from reading it I want to read them all it's like my sister had a friend when we were kids her mom wouldn't let her eat any sugar at all and she would go to the convenience store whenever she couldn't just buy like as much candy as she could yeah. and eat it on the sly <laughs> and I feel like it is like the same way with banned books but also just thought like if there's something your parents don't want you to think about or read about it just makes you want to know more you know when I tend to think about banned books one of them that always comes to mind is Judy Bloom's Forever now my parents they didn't know what I read I mean I read Forever probably some people would have thought that I was too young to read it but I read it anyway. So I'm curious, like when you think about banned books, do you have books that you've read that have just been repeatedly put on the banned books list? Definitely. Oh, and I was the same. I, my parents didn't pay attention to what I read at all, which I feel like was a huge gift. I got to kind of just explore the library and have that freedom. One of them actually is The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian that I mentioned before. I think it's such a fabulous book. I think it is a book that all kids should read and whether they should read it in like eighth grade or ninth grade. I don't know. Schools can figure that out. <laughs> but I feel like they should. Partly because a novel, but it is based on Sherman Luxie's experiences growing up on the reservation in Pacific Northwest and just how completely the education system failed him. And I think the book opens up with he's going through his textbook at school and he sees his mother's name written in the textbook which shows that this school hasn't gotten new textbooks since his mother was a student. But I feel like that book, more than any I've read, really shines a light on certain aspects of American history and the education system. When I always wonder like what the real reasons are for banning a book, 
because that one that book you could say oh it's for language or for sexual content like that scene i described but i feel like really people might ban it because they don't want to have the conversations about native americans in america and i also the things they carried by tim o'brien oh, is on the banned yes. books list too and i love that book yeah. i think that's another book i think all americans should read so i have taught the things they carried mm-hmm. and i've also taught all quiet on the western front by eric maria remark and Amy and I were having this discussion about war is horrible. And so if you're a civilian, I don't know that anybody would think that war is pleasant or wonderful. Or So it's kind of a window. And I'm not sure, again, why people, you know, does because it has language, because there's some gory bits. I mean, yeah, but that's what war is. So I think it's like what you said about we don't want to think about it. We just want to put our blinders on and not know what really happens. And I think those are two books that really help you understand what war is and what war can do to people. One of my favorites that's on that list is Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. And, you know, I read that the reason that it was taken out of schools was because of 227 instances of coarse language. And there is there's some sexuality in it, but it's a YA book and it's about a teen love story between two sort of misfits in some ways. I did have a talk about this with an author I was talking to about things like swearing and sexual content. Well, particularly in YA with sexual content, but even language and middle grade content, where we know that in real life, kids are aware of, and many of them use certain words, but they're generally not in books. So this weird disconnect of a sanitized reality in books versus what kids' lives are actually like. Not that I'm suggesting we should pepper, you know, middle grade books with swearing, but just that there is this difference between what their real lives are like and what adults like to think their lives should be like, maybe. <laughs> it really struck me when I watched Stranger Things. I don't know if you've seen that yeah. show. Yeah. That group of middle schoolers, especially the first season when like they're really young looking and yeah, they swear and that makes sense. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> middle schoolers do. When I remember in that first season, they were using swear words, but you could tell they were doing it because it was a swear word. Like they were testing yeah. out using the swear words. Totally, yeah, which is what you do when you're that age. Yes, to see what happens and the way it feels in your mouth and it feels like it's something you shouldn't be doing, which therefore makes us edgy. Well, I want to talk about your podcast. So you host a podcast associated with your library, the Mill Valley Public Library called Eight Books That Made Me. Tell us a little bit about your show and how it got started. So I started working at this library about two and a half years ago and that podcast already existed in one form. So it was Eight Books That Made Me and it had started as a podcast talking to different presenters that had spoken at the at library events and they would talk about eight books that impacted their lives. And it was a really cool podcast, but it was all very academic, intellectual. And I just listening to it thought I would love to do this with YA authors. One, because I feel like a lot of times those authors don't get the credit for craft that people who write like adult literature do, even though so many of them are great writers. So I would love to talk to them just as artists in that way and kind of give them that respect and then also just celebrate their books and maybe to for teens who might be listening, but also to adults who don't think those books might be for them, but might actually really love those books. It was kind of a perfect fit for me, too, because one of my favorite things to do has been to read friends like favorite book. So it's a perfect synergy of something I like to do in my life and that I could do in this podcast. So what I do is I talk to YA authors about five books that had a big impact on them from when they were children and teenagers and young adults. And then they'll do just like a quick pitch for three YA books they think everyone 
including maybe especially adults should read. It's, it's been like such a gift to myself because <laughs> I, I get all these books that I've never read before. One that stuck out was this book called Dog's Body by Diane Wynne Jones. <gasps> I tried to find that one after hearing about it on your show and our local library did not have it. And so I've been looking for it in some secondhand. Now she wrote Howl's Moving Castle, right? Yes. She's a very prolific author and some of hers are like definitely, you know, still popular in print, but that was one I had never even heard of, but it was a wonderful book. Are there any books that appear often on the list that the authors give you or are they pretty varied? They're pretty varied. There are some themes, I feel like, that have gone through a lot of them. So a lot of the authors I talk to are very diverse. And a lot of them have a similar experience of not having the mirror books, like we were talking about, not having diverse books when they were kids. So a lot of them read classics like maybe Little Women or Nancy Drew. And that diversity in books didn't really come until either college or like even older than that. And a lot of them had periods where they stopped reading, maybe from like teenagehood until yeah. they were older adults because they didn't find any books they were interested in. In terms of the, like, the three YA book pitches, Jason Reynolds comes up a lot. A couple of his books, but especially Long Way Down. That's actually what I'm going to talk about in our Ooh. next section. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, he's amazing in general. And I was really lucky. I hired him to come out to an event at a library I worked at before he was super famous. So I got to meet him and see him in person. I'd say he's like maybe on half the writer's list as someone that everybody should read, which is true. (laughs) Yes. So what are some interesting things you've learned about authors when they tell you the books they love most? I think the number one thing I've been surprised to learn from them is how many of them weren't voracious readers as children. But some of them, you know, were never big readers as kids. And it does seem to come back to that common theme of not having any books they had access to that reflected their experience, which I think is another reason why I'm so excited to talk to them because they are such a diverse group of writers writing these really amazing diverse books. So this new generation of kids does have like so many more options of what they can read. So hopefully grows more readers, which is kind of what I'm all about at the end of the day is just having more people read. Well, so if somebody's interested in listening to the podcast, where should they go? What should they look up? So it's eight books that made me. You can also find it on our website, which is millvalleylibrary.org, or on my Instagram, which is Natalie Rose Librarian. I always post when there's a new episode. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Natalie McCall and with Carrie. So Carrie, what are you reading? So I have been reading a book that's been on my radar for a while. It's called The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness by Cy Montgomery. And it was a National Book Award finalist. I am actually teaching my students this year. We're working on creative nonfiction, which one of our past guests had mentioned, Hannah Rose Newhauser from Young Authors Greenhouse, had talked about creative nonfiction. And so she mentioned it and that got me thinking and exploring a little bit. And once I started planning lessons for my students, I realized that I read a lot of creative nonfiction, apparently. I have my students like an independent study. And so this year they have to read two books on their own, but they have to be creative nonfiction. And so I 
gave them a list and I said, these are all the ones that I've read. So I can recommend any of these, but you're free to pick whatever. And so I started making my list and it just kept going and going and going. And I thought, wow, this must be my jam. I never really thought about it. So this book is all about octopuses and it's Simon Montgomery. Are you sure it's not octopi? Well, I think if I remember what she said, that's actually not correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's on the first page. Ah. She says, I knew little about octopuses, not even that the scientifically correct plural is not octopi, as I had always believed. It turns out you can't put a Latin ending I on a word derived from Greek, such as octopus. So it is octopuses. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> anyway, she makes friends, kind of gets in at this aquarium up in the Northeast. I think it's Boston Aquarium. And she starts learning all about octopuses and she gets to touch them and she learns from the people who work at the aquarium. I'm at the part in the book, she is learning how to scuba dive because she wants to have her own real life in the wild experiences with octopuses. And she's talking about how smart octopuses are. And in my normal life, I would never think, oh, octopuses are very smart animals. But, you know, they change color and they can camouflage and they can change the texture and how their bodies look. And so it's really fascinating. And with creative nonfiction, you know, it's not just straight up facts. The writers weave in a lot of those wonderful narrative elements that we typically think about in novels. So like a lot of description or similes or metaphors or foreshadowing, allusions to other things. So it's a cool blend of teaching you something, but making it a really enjoyable read in the same way that you would read a novel. So I'm loving it. I mean, I I like octopuses anyway, but it's a fun read. I highly recommend it. And I've actually used a couple paragraphs from this book to help teach my students things that they can do in their own writing to blend the facts that can be tedious with all those great narrative elements. It's not very long. It's 240 pages. Yeah. So it's a fast read. I mean, I guess if you have no interest in octopuses, it might be hard to read, but I've been flying through it. I love creative nonfiction as well, but sometimes I feel like with some nonfiction, they take a topic and sort of beat it into the ground. (laughs) Like (laughs) I read the book Quiet, that I know was very popular among a lot of people, but I felt like that book could have been at least half the length that it was, that Mm -hmm. she was repeating the same thing over and over just in different ways. And so that one sounds like it could be a possibility. It's a nonfiction book, but the, I'm putting in air quotes, the characters change because the octopuses don't live very long, right? So there's one octopus and then you have another octopus that comes into the aquarium. So definitely, I don't feel like she's beating a dead horse. Do the so octopuses have names? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then I Oh, am. yeah. Okay. Karma, Callie. Oh, okay. I think there was an Ophelia. You sold me <laughs> when you said the octopus characters. That was... <laughs> There you go. I have that same problem with adult nonfiction, though. That's why I generally don't read it, because it's usually too long. Yeah. Yeah. I like short books. Well, Natalie, what have you been reading? So I'm cheating a little bit. I have two, because I'm never reading one book at a time. The one is the Johnny Maxwell series, which is a children's book series written by Terry Pratchett in the 90s. I'm actually reading it because I'm getting into Halloween mode of wanting to read ghost stories. Yeah, I was looking up ghost stories and came across one of these books. But the first one is called... Only You Can Save Mankind. 
and it's about a kid who's playing video games, and this takes place in England during the Gulf War, so that's the backdrop of this, and he's playing the Space Invaders-type video game, but it turns out the aliens are real, so when he's killing aliens in this game, he's, like, killing real aliens in their spaceships, and one of them sent him a message of, we surrender, like, please stop. (laughs) So, and he ends up having to trying to protect the aliens from like all the other kids who are playing this game from their homes. Terry Pratchett is such like a fun writer, like really just good writing, but also just really clever and funny, but also has this layer of reality at the time of just the Gulf War and the kid relating what he's seeing on TV and soldiers and fighting and killing each other and this not being real to each other with playing this game with Space Invaders. So it has this edge. And I'm reading the second book of that trilogy, which is Johnny and the Dead, where he can now see dead people. He goes with his grandfather to the cemetery and he's talking to some people actually who died during World War One. So again, he's like really clever at writing. This is, kind of, this is my jam. My, my, my favorite type of story is one that has depth and is like thoughtful, but also is like really fun and escapist at the same time. His books are kind, really of, good at- kind of zany, aren't they? I, I've not yeah. read any, but my husband's a huge fan and has a lot of his books. He wrote like, I don't know, at least 80 books. <laughs> yes, he's There's very this- prolific. And some are, I hear, much, much better than others. I don't know if they're all connected, but there's it's called the Discworld series. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of in the same zany supernatural universe, but they're like different stories within it. There's a witch series that's like kind of middle grade to teen, and they're like all these different stories. And if you Google Discworld, it'll bring up a crazy graph slash map that shows you different ways you can read it. <laughs> like you can read it in publishing order, or you can read it like in these little sections. There's like, you know, little series like within this big world. When you were talking about that, I thought of Ender's Game, which sounds like it had a similar vibe, but probably it sounds like maybe lighter. Yeah, I read Ender's Game. I love that book. This has like similar vibe, but also, yeah, he has that kind of that zany edge. It's just like so wonderfully done because there are a lot of serious topics, even just his parents are, you know, maybe going through a divorce and he just calls it the trying times, trying (laughs) times capitalized. And, you know, he has to make his own dinner and like his friend's mom notices, but it's all still has this lighthearted tone, which I think is really masterful. I think very few people can write like that. But also, I think that's like kind of how people live their lives. Like even when things are really grim, if you're a child, like you're still hanging out with your friends at school and playing video games. I'm counting that series as one book, even though it's three. <laughs> then there's um, we're going to do I'm the also- eight books that made you. With <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'm also rereading the Black Kids by Christina Hammond Reads, and she's actually the next the guest for my podcast that comes out on Friday. And her book is my YA book of the year. I think it's it's the best book I've read. And it's her debut novel. It's set in Los Angeles in 1992 during the Rodney King riots. And it's about a wealthy black girl who goes to like a really wealthy private school and never really has thought about race because her life is pretty sheltered and cushy. But like this big situation in her city makes her really confront things she hasn't thought about, you know, look at her relationships with her friends. And it's just... A beautifully written coming-of-age book. Like, anybody who likes coming-of-age stories, this is a really beautiful book for that. But it's also really fun. Well, fun and a little bit sad that the 90s count as historical fiction. Yeah, Yeah, because that was just like seven years ago or something. Right? But it is kind of fun to read those details of the music and the outfits and TV. Like, some of the kids at school behind her back call her Lisa Turtle because amongst (laughs) her group of friends, she's the only black girl and it's just like Saved by the Bell. But so it's kind of fun to read those details and be reminded of that time. (laughs) Well, Amy, what have you had going on? 
Well, like I said in our last section, I am going to talk about Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. So one of our former guests, Tamika, maybe a month ago, recommended this. She's a middle school English teacher. And I found it on my audiobooks through our library and decided to listen to it. It's narrated by Jason Reynolds himself. This book was published 2017, and it was did happen to be on the American Library Association list of banned or restricted books for 2018. So this is a YA book, and it follows the story of a teen boy named Will who's grieving over the very recent death of his older brother by gun violence. And he knows the rules his brother taught him and have been passed down for generations of men around him. And the three rules are you never snitch, you don't cry, and you take revenge for the death of someone close to you, whether it be a family member or a friend. So as he's reeling over his his brother's death, he finds his brother's gun in a dresser drawer, hides it in his waistband of his pants, heads to the elevator of his apartment building to go find the guy he believes shot his brother. So he lives on the eighth floor. He gets in the elevator and pushes L for lobby. And the elevator on its way down stops at every floor on the way down and a person gets in. And each of the people is someone who is known to him, but they also are dead. So Reynolds himself describes this book as Boys in the Hood meets The Christmas Carol. And I think that that's a really excellent description. It's a book that's written in verse. And Will's whole story takes place in the course of about 60 seconds. So like I said, I listened to this on audiobook. Reynolds reads it himself, and it is just so excellent. And I wouldn't have necessarily known that it was written in verse just by listening to it. And in fact, I didn't know it was written in verse until the afterward where they had a, an interview with Reynolds and he talks about it. But his voice has such a musical cadence to it when he's narrating it that after he said it, I mean, it totally made sense. He doesn't narrate all of his own audiobook, but this particular one, he said he felt strongly that he needed to narrate that because it was written in verse, he knew which parts he wanted to emphasize, how the lines should be delivered. And he said that he wrote it in verse because the timeline is so short and the elevator space is so small that he thought that the language needed to be contained with the small moments. And so it's like how our brain works in brevity. Our brain synapses don't really think in complete sentences. So you see something and you may think in words or sentence fragments or images. And because this whole story takes place in only a minute, the prose really needed to be condensed. So all of these ideas of the book are running through Will's mind in that 60 seconds that he's going down on the elevator. So I would say the overall message of the book is that the cycle of gun violence is circular and it's never ending. And it will only promote more violence until someone decides that the rules don't really make any sense. And so in this interview, Reynolds talked about spending a lot of time with boys in a juvenile detention center in California, where some of the boys were serving 10-year sentences in maximum security juvenile detention centers, and they were only 14 years old. Mm. And when he followed one of the boys' stories back, I guess it was really gang violence, but it was a beef between these two gangs that went back to the 1960s over a pair of shoes. Wow. And the boys... They don't know anything about that pair of shoes. So many deaths and violence over an issue that no one cares about anymore and really shouldn't have even cared about back then. One of Reynolds' goals, he said, was to give readers a way to see into the ecosystems of neighborhoods that you may not know anything about. And that he wasn't really trying to teach a lesson per se, but to expand empathy. And I wrote down a quote. He said, you should humble yourself enough to accept the fact that you don't know everything about everyone. 
Mm-hmm. And I just found it a really powerful book. I'm so glad that I listened to it. I'd like to go back and read it in verse two as well, because I would like to be able to actually see some of the language in print so that maybe I could mark it up. <laughs> that sounds weird, mark it up. But I love audiobooks, but one of the things I don't like about audiobooks is when I hear a great line, it's said and then it's gone. Yeah, it makes annotation pretty difficult. <laughs> right. And so I guess what I'm saying is I'd like to go back and read it on the page and pay more attention to the really great language. I'm really excited. There's a graphic novel version of this book coming out. I think it's just coming out in the next month or so. I've heard that. One of the things I think is really interesting about Jason Reynolds too, is that he said he never read books growing up. And then to be able to write such beautiful books is really incredible. We're saying about the authors that you interview that there have been many that weren't really big readers. You know, you always hear the advice that writers give to be a good writer, you need to be a big reader. You're sort of practicing it intellectually by reading other writers, but that's not always the case. Well, one thing I've learned as I've I've become more open-minded and gotten over my pretentiousness as a reader is like there are so many different ways of exploring story, but also language. Like I think Jason Reynolds talked about like he was someone who listened to a lot of rap music Mm -hmm. and I don't know if he wrote it when he was younger, but that was his way of learning the art of using language when he was younger. And for some people, it might be get it from stories from film or even like video games, like people have their own Kind right. of access points for exploring all of that. People should read more verse novels. There are some great ones in YA. Yeah, Carrie read a whole bunch of them last year that she talked yeah, about. Yeah, that was my middle schooler's independent study. I gave them like five possible books and they had to pick a book in verse. The Crossover by Kwame Alexander, Kaminar by Skeela Brown, Under the Mesquite by Guadalupe Garcia McCall, Inside Out and Back Again by Tana Lai. And Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline oh, Woodson. Brown Girl Dreaming is one of my all-time favorites. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, so I those were it. the ones that the students chose from. And then one of the ones that I used to teach was Out of the Dust by Karen Hess, which is set in the Dust Bowl. I love that one too. Lots of good books in verse for young readers. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Natalie her top five. We are back with Natalie McCall, and we're going to ask her her top five. Question number one, you like to collect postcards. What kind of postcards are your favorite to collect? And what is one of your top favorite ones in your collection? So I love to collect postcards, especially from art museums. Partly it's like a cheap way of, you know, not getting a print for everything. And a lot of times I've found like my favorite painting in a museum, there won't be prints of it anyway, but there might be a postcard. So anywhere I go, even locally, if I travel across the country, my favorite one I got years ago now when I was studying abroad in London on a trip to Florence, but it's like one of the famous Botticelli paintings as a postcard. And just reminds me of getting to see that in person. Do you do anything special with them? Some of them I've hung on the wall. Right now, a lot of them are in a box. (laughs) (laughs) So one one day I'll find something special to do with them. Every once in a while, I pull them out just to kind of remember the trips, especially places who knows if I'll ever go to Florence again. I feel like postcards are making a comeback. Well, maybe they were never down. I don't know. But I have started sending them more, actually. Yeah, and and Carrie likes to send them. So maybe the comeback is Carrie that I'm thinking about. (laughs) You just hear me talk about it. (laughs) I love it. I have launched a comeback. Here we go. 
I just sent one to a friend because he called a surprise party, but it was really like a surprise mailbox party for his birthday where people were asked to mail him things instead of, you know, since he couldn't have an in-person party. So it's fun to go through my postcard collection and choose one from there. That needs to be a new term that's used <laughs> often, a mailbox party. Okay, question number two. When you were a child, you were a child model. How did you get involved with this? And was the top thing that people would be surprised to learn about child modeling? So I have a sister who's six years older. She had done a little modeling, but that's kind of how I got into it because she was already doing it. So I do have kind of a scrapbook of modeling pictures. The first real job, I was maybe like 18 weeks old. You know, like those Macy's catalogs that used to be in the newspapers? It was like a little picture of me modeling like a little onesie. Oh! <laughs> How cute. <laughs> what I would say, and this is just totally from my perspective, and my perspective is like I did it as long as it was fun, and I didn't have parents who pushed me, so as soon as it wasn't fun, I stopped. But the surprising thing is, in a way, it was actually really good for my self-esteem. So I'm mixed race. My dad's black and my mom's white, and I was pretty unusual. Like in the town where I grew up, I think it was me and my sister and like one other kid that we knew looked like the way that we did. But in modeling, the way that I looked was really popular. And like I was always getting positive affirmation from the adults when I was doing these jobs. So it was really good for my self-esteem, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of being mixed growing up at that time. All right. Question number three. During the pandemic, you have developed an interest in Korean dramas. So how did you find them? And tell us a little bit about what some of the characteristics are of them. So I was aware of Korean dramas. I'd watched like one or two. One thing I like about them is they tend to be just one series. So almost an extended mini series from like what we know. They're usually like a one season, 16 episode show. And that tells you like a complete story. So I like that you get a whole complete story. You're not dangling for years. It's kind of like a complete story. And I've binged a lot of these. <laughs> there are a lot of them on Netflix. I think my favorite one still and appropriate for this book podcast is one that's called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. The main character is a children's book author. And it's a story of different characters healing from trauma they experience in their childhood. But it also has this sort of fairy tale framing where each episode is framed in different fairy tale stories. And some are stories that we know, like in the West, like there's Rapunzel. There might have been like a Hansel and Gretel. Some are like Korean folk tales. And then some are original stories. And I think they actually wrote a couple of like original picture book stories for this show. Well, I love anything with fairy tales in general, but I kind of love that as like an entry point to a contemporary story. And they're on Netflix. They have a Netflix. lot of international series on there now. That's Yeah, right cool. before that, I had watched this German show called Dark, which was also very good, but very dark thematically. <laughs> yeah. I would watch it at night excessively, but then be, have weird dreams. <laughs> so the My Korean husband, ones are kind yeah. of more, the way at least the ones I've been watching are kind of more escapist and and fun. Okay, question number four. You enjoy taking walks. Many people listen to podcasts, I do, or audiobooks, but you listen to something that's a little more unusual. What's the top thing you like to listen to when you're out enjoying fall weather? So there's this old radio drama called Suspense. I think it started like in the 40s. So I also love old classic movies. And that's how I originally found this radio drama through that, because there there's an episode where Betty Davis is one of the characters. Like a lot of movie stars of that time recorded episodes of this show before they were famous. I particularly like to listen to it on walks, like in the fall or winter when it's cold and maybe it's fun to listen to a creepy story. It's almost like the Twilight Zone where they're like these short episodic stories and they're all almost kind of film noir, like suspense Thing. So like maybe a husband's trying to murder his wife for various stories. Each one's about 30 minutes long. So like two of them will give you a good walk. <laughs> 
So how do you find them? Like, where, where do you get them? I've been listening to them on YouTube. I think they are also on like any podcast app if you look for suspense. And it's kind of fun too because they're also interrupted. Like they have their mid-break commercials. So it's cool to hear like, you know, what the commercials were in, in the 40s. Oh, yeah. And maybe there are more podcasts that I don't know about, but I'm like, it's kind of a cool format, the radio drama. I yeah. I like to bring that back. Yeah, kind of transport you to another time. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, several theater companies here, because they cannot do in-person shows, have converted some of their shows to doing a radio play. Like uh, one of our theaters here does Dracula every year, and it's something that they're known for. Well, they have turned it into a radio drama now, and there was another one last year that did Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that one, you could actually go and sit in the audience and watch them do it. And the things that they use to make the different sounds is really Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. So you have said that you like to try other people's hobbies at least once. So first explain that to us a little bit. And then tell us, what is the top hobby you've tried that you would like to stick with? Kind of was like how with books, like I like to read people's favorite books. It's a good way to get to know people, I think. You know, you might find something you fall in love with and want to continue. One that I really loved is I have a friend who takes a lot of dance classes. And she's someone who, she came to dancing later as an adult. Like she didn't dance as a young person at all, but found a studio. She lives in LA. So when I would visit her, I would take whatever classes she was going to. My favorite was one year, and it was it was years ago because now I think he is in seclusion, but we went to a Richard Simmons class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Which is like one of the coolest experiences of my life. <laughs> I'm just imagining. I can just, <laughs> you know. Like in his short little striped satin shorts. <laughs> well, it was, so it was in Beverly Hills in this studio that must have been made in the 90s because it had like the girls dressing room was pink. The boys was like blue. And there were some regulars there, but then there were a lot of people who were like us, who were tourists, who would come just for him. And he came in, he'd just been shooting a music video, and he was dressed up like Joan Crawford. And he started the music, and then he came through, and there was also like a disco ball in the exercise studio. So he kind of turned the lights down and put the disco ball up. He came through, and he air-kissed everybody on the cheek going down the line. (laughs) And then when he started, he he would like de-Joned himself. So by the end of it, he was like Richard Simmons and... He wasn't wearing the little shorts, but he had these shiny leggings and he had like the Richard Simmons kind of tank top. It was so fun and so classic. Well, Natalie, it has been so fun meeting you from a a very far, many miles distance. So thanks for talking about banned books and sharing your expertise with us. No, thank you for having me. This is so fun to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www perksofbeingabooklover.com Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.